0: I'm an index publisher, so just like I was tracking states, I'm trying to track a sector from a company perspective. So I'm looking like, who are the publicly traded companies? What do they do? What's my definition?
1: Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Today, I'm joined by Ron Pernick, founder and managing director of CleanEdge. Ron actually wrote the first report to identify the tremendous financial opportunities in clean tech, and subsequently, he wrote two books on the topic. Ron has over three decades of experience in high-tech sectors with previous stints in both the telecom and the internet sectors prior to spending the last 20 years in clean tech. We're very glad to have Ron with us today on Smart Energy Voices as our special guest. Ron, welcome to Smart Energy Voices, and thanks for taking some time with us today. Well, thanks for
0: having me, and it's great to be here, John.
2: I'm fascinated by your career trajectory and would really like to get a much better sense of understanding for your journey and and who you are. So maybe, Ron, let's start by having you tell us about your career journey starting in telecom, moving on to internet, and now in, in the clean tech space.
0: Well, I think my journey to clean tech is an example in tenacity and perseverance. I wanted to actually get involved in, in clean energy probably, well, back in college. So now we're talking about the mid to late 80s. And at the time, you might remember that it wasn't even called clean energy. It was like appropriate technologies or alternative energy was a great interest, but the timing wasn't right. So, it was the, like I said, it was the mid-'80s. I was sort of looking around at, at what I might do with my career, knowing really, you know, if you talk to a kid today, you got to tell them, look, you're going to have like four or five, ten careers. I don't think people thought that back in the mid-'80s, but I think I had a pretty clear sense of that because I knew I was attracted to technology, and I knew I wanted to be involved in communicating the technological changes that were coming whether that be video conferencing or clean energy. So I looked at the landscape and I talked with my career counselor at in university. I was at Michigan State University and I kind of did a dual in telecom and Asian studies. And that took me to Japan and where I learned Japanese and really sort of solidified that opportunity. And so when I graduated university, I could speak Japanese somewhat. You know, I spent a year abroad. I had learned and studied telecom, and my first job was with Electronic Data Systems Corp., and I was doing video conferencing setups globally. <laughs> so, so, that got me sort of the bug that taste for innovation and, and emerging sectors.
2: So, from telecom then in, into internet, tell us a little bit about your time in the, in the internet space.
0: Yeah, sure, sure. I appreciate that segue. I used to tell a story when I wrote my first book, and I did a lot of talks then about the book. And I have like this story about my dad. My dad's very technologically savvy, but I'll just take you through it real quick. So it's it's the mid '80s, and I tell my dad, or actually it's early '80s, and I tell my dad, "Yeah, I'm going to study telecom and Asian studies." He goes like, <laughs> "Tell it like, what are you going to do with that?" Right? Like he was like, he couldn't get it. And I like then I graduated, and I got the good job, and he was like, oh, "Okay, well that's kind of cool." And then I moved to Japan. Then I was in San Francisco. After I left Japan, I moved to San Francisco. And I wanted, again, to get into clean energy. Now it's 1991, right? And I wanted to get into clean energy. And I had some money saved up from Japan. And I worked with David Brower at Earth Island Institute. And I was ready to go. But again, timing wasn't right. You got to realize this is still 1991. There's not a lot happening. But I joined a PR firm. And I got a job communicating emerging technologies. Perfect fit for me. I didn't even understand what PR was, to be honest with you. But my first client was the Well, Whole Earth Electronic Link, which was the first online bulletin board. And from there, it just went crazy because I was one of the first people to see the internet in the World Wide Web and a graphical interface. And that was with a Global Network Navigator and Internet in a Box. And I'll tell about that in a second. But I, my dad says, what are you doing now that you're in San Francisco? I'm like, I, I'm working in the Internet. And he goes, the inner what? <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> so you get that. And then many years later, I'll tell the story about how I got there, but I started working in clean tech. He said, I trust you. So, and that was, no 20 years ago when clean tech wasn't really in the vernacular. So the internet is interesting. I got lucky. I got this job at a PR firm. They actually offered me the chance to work in clean energy. They said, you want to pursue that, go for it. And in fact, there was a company called US Electric Car. We went to visit them in Sebastopol, California, did not get the gig. That company never went anywhere. However, right next to US Electric Car in Sebastopol was O'Reilly and Associates. And any of the people on this call who know about the Unix book world know about this company. So it was great. We actually got called back to Sebastopol two weeks after we had met US Electric Car. And that was when I saw Global Network Navigator for the first time. And Tim O'Reilly was in the meeting and Dale Doherty. And they're all saying, like, can you help us get the word out on what this is going to be about? This is game-changing. And so, I was the account rep who launched Internet in a Box, Global Network Navigator, then worked on Yahoo, Preview Travel, Travelocity, and a whole slew of other internet names at the time. So, for me, it was a great fit because it was technological. It was innovation-oriented. It was very scalable. It was disruptive. And those were all aligned with sort of what I saw as very exciting in terms of for... I was in my mid to late 20s, what a great thing to be doing. And so to get to clean tech, I've done all these internet companies. I almost worked for eight years in the internet. And I really said, like, now's the time for me to pursue clean energy. So I set up my own shop called Web Strategies in the mid-90s. And by the late 90s, I realized that over half of my clients were all clean energy. I mean, that was by design, of course. I had GETF, Global Environment Technology Fund. I had a Ted Turner-backed venture called Verde Media that was a client. Rockefeller was a client doing some advanced EV analysis work. And I said, got it. Timing is right. I learned about an event in Geneva, Switzerland in 1999, went to that event. It was a World Bank, UN event on clean technology. I'm all excited. I go to the first day of the event and they say, we're not going to use the word clean tech anymore. We're going to use EST. And the acronym was Environmentally Sound Technologies. (laughs) I was offended. I was like, this can't be true. I actually left the conference early, went to Paris for the first time in my life, Wandered the streets of Paris, and there and on the plane ride back, I came up with the concept for Clean Edge. I came up with the name, what the company was going to do. I contacted Joel McCower on my return, who had Green Biz at the time; he still has it. and 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 the rest was history. He said, "I love it. Let's do it." And we came up with the concept for the business, which was an analyst organization focused on the emerging clean tech sector. And we were off and running in 2001.
2: Wow, you certainly have a knack for being out front of trends that are going to be fairly large and fairly substantial. So, what gave you the idea, though, for Clean Edge? When you say you were you were doing this internet. Work and then you had a sense for this analyst firm. Were you modeling it after an internet analyst firm or you
0: you got it? Gartner, it was Gartner
2: for Clean Edge. Was yeah, I
0: was thinking Gartner and Jupiter. If you remember Jupiter,
2: I sure do.
0: Yeah, so these were companies that put on events, that put out analysis, and that. Consulted and and I'll be honest, I think I I run a little bit more towards the smaller scale. It's just the way I'm I'm engineered, and so NEF New Energy Finance kind of nailed it. They're the ones who did what Clean Edge was also envisioning. He was actually a couple years after Clean Edge, but he just nailed it. Sold it to Bloomberg, and they became the analyst shop. But we did some interesting work. We wrote the first report for the city of San Francisco for their clean tech initiatives in 2004 and five. We did a follow on report. We worked with some of the earliest venture capitalists and put on an event with Ira Aaron Prize at Technology Partners and with IBF. It was called the Clean Tech Investor Summit. Co-authored the two books that you mentioned earlier. We consulted with Wells Fargo, Solar City. We worked with Massachusetts and Oregon on their clean energy plan. So the shop did well. It was exciting, but we never grew it to that analyst firm of 70 to 100 to 200 people then later get sold. And fast forward to today and we're fully focused on stock indexing. So it's been an itching ride. There were a lot it was a really fun sandbox and it allowed us to do the events, it allowed us to do the consulting and it allowed us to do the stock indexing, and and the metro tracking, and the state tracking that we did as well.
2: Yeah, that was a great idea to find something that worked in another sector and apply it to an emerging sector. I remember Jupiter. They were located in midtown Manhattan, led by a very flamboyant guy. I actually, in a prior career on my end, Ron, I, I believe it was 95, we did one of the first conferences on internet retailing. I still have these slides from that deck that project when AOL or Amazon were going to have their first million-dollar day in sales. Yep. yep.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, Jupiter was definitely one of the key models. I visited that same Manhattan shop. I went to their parties on their rooftop.
2: Oh, I mean, oh man. We can't get into those stories here. But that was Jason Kalkanis, right?
0: I actually don't remember those details. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. When I was at Preview Travel, and that was the first online travel agency on AOL, and Excite, if you remember Excite, and then it later merged with Travelocity. It went public. I over—I was there when they went public overseeing their communications. But we we hired Jupiter at that time. And so I was very familiar with both Gartner and Jupiter.
2: Okay, so you've got this model. You see this booming opportunity. And you say, okay, we're going to plant our flag in it. The innovation that you introduced that really hadn't been done before was this piece around your relationship with NASDAQ and the indexes that you were doing. How, how did that piece come about? And what can you tell us about kind of how you got involved with NASDAQ, how you got involved with First Trust?
0: Yeah, so this is really interesting. A story hasn't been told that many times other than with friends late at night having a drink. So thanks for asking that. So when we started Clean Edge, we got six different trademark classifications. Everything from publishing to convening to indexing. And financial indexing, we didn't do all of those from the get go. But when I look back, I just I had to redo some trademark stuff because we're doing a lot of international trademark work right now. All of those classifications ended up being spot on. That was good. We did our work. We we figured out. So I had the interest in creating indexing. As I said earlier, we did state tracking. We indexed all the states and benchmarked them. We did it for the top fifty metro regions. That had already been out. That was a body of work. You can find it on our website. You can see the years of work. It's in our archive section on the website. So I was already interested in how do we do company tracking when we started Clean Edge. There weren't even enough companies to do this with. But by five years in 2005 or so, I brought in a really wonderful guy who now heads up some work at Clear Result or DNVGL. I'm sorry, he's now moved on to DNVGL. Nick Broad and he was at Stanford University at the time and he worked with me for about a year and we built the first stock index together on clean energy markets together that was you know internally we found out later you know Rob Wilder launched Wilder Hill at a similar time frame and I created the index and I went out and tried to find a partner because Clean Edge was always built on partnerships if you're an eight person shop but you're putting out events and consulting, you got to have partnerships. So we always had big partnerships. So I went out and tried to get a group. I'm not going to name them, but I was days away from signing an agreement with this very large organization that did environmental finance work. And they totally got it. I pushed them pretty hard and they said, yeah, let's do this. Three days before I was going to sign the agreement with them, I get a call from NASDAQ. And Nasdaq says, like, we keep looking up clean energy and clean edges everywhere. Have you ever thought about doing a stock index? I said, well, yeah, we've thought about. It. Not <laughs> only have we thought about it, we've got it built. And they're like, well, that's great news. And they said, well, would you be interested in partnering with us? And you know, we could co do it. You be the domain expert. You pick the companies. You create the universe. We've got the publishing side and the real-time analysis, and we can run all the quant screens against the index or the universe. And I said, of course, I I would love that. I said, can you move quickly? I said, here's the deal. I'm literally days away. We're reviewing papers right now. I've got a contract I'm about to sign. And they said, we can move quickly. I said, okay, I'm going to ask the other partner if they mind waiting. I'll explain it to them. Call the other potential partner and said, Ron, you've been pestering us on this one. Yes, you should go with NASDAQ. (laughs) We will give you a month to figure this out. And within a month, I had an agreement with
2: NASDAQ. That is awesome. That is awesome. So you uh, planted your flag intelligently and a major player who was looking to do something very similar found you.
0: Fast forward, you know, to today we've got four indexes together. First trust and others license the indexes for a range of ETF, mutual fund, and other financial products.
2: So you create the indexes with NASDAQ, and then players like First Trust will create AFTs based on those models. Is that is that how that works?
0: Well, it could be an exchange traded fund, an ETF, it could be a mutual fund, it could be other other types of vehicles. I'm an index publisher. So just like I was tracking states, I'm trying to track a sector from a company perspective. So I'm looking like, who are the publicly traded companies? What do they do? What's my definition for one of our indexes, CLS, which is probably the more popular one because it has QClean tracking it it's the U.S. listed Clean Energy Index. So what is clean energy? How do you define that? What are the buckets? And in our case, we have renewable energy as a bucket. We've got advanced enabling materials. We've got energy storage and conversion, which includes EVs and energy storage and fuel cells. And then we have intelligent efficiency, basically. So those are the, the buckets. And then I define who fits in that. And you know, the market has changed dramatically. The goal for us it's not so much an investment thesis as a thesis to track and benchmark the market, just like you see other benchmarks. And they're thematic and they're passive. They're not actively managed. Then they run through a quant screen based on trading volume and market cap. And, and then you've got these indexes that have seen some significant shifts over the years.
2: Right. So the framework for the index is your work. And then the degree to which those particular companies play a role in an ETF or a mutual fund, it sounds like is decided by the ETF or the mutual fund operator.
0: Well, they have no choice. They go with what's in our final index.
2: Including weighting for each individual component? Yeah, the
0: index has weighting methodologies. We have equal weight. We have modified market cap weight indexes. For example, CLS is a modified market cap weighting index.
2: Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. So my understanding is you currently have green energy, global smart grid, global wind energy, And there's a water index.
0: U.S. water.
2: U.S. water. Those are the four sectors.
0: Those are the four major indexes. And then I also provide my universe to some other folks. There's a group called FFI that does a long short. It's long clean energy, short fossil fuels. We're working on other indexes right now that are focused on other areas or other sort of constructions.
2: Fascinating. Well, look, at, at being in the media business, I am in awe at your ability to not only go from hot sector to hot sector to hot sector, but continually innovate with your business model. So congratulations on what you've done. Thanks.
0: And something I wrote about in our first book with Clint Wilder, who's been my co-author on the two books, was that like literally clean tech offers lifetime job opportunity because the internet shifts were happening so rapidly. And, you know, it's high-tech based. And, and with clean energy, it's it's high-tech focused, it's high-tech based, but you're dealing with conventional, slower moving industries. So these are 10, 20, 30, 40 year transitions. And so what we wrote in the first book is anyone who was interested in a lifelong career, like you actually can just Get involved in clean tech, clean energy, and it's likely going to last a long time. And that's certainly been the case for me. You know, here's a guy, myself, who did telecom in Asia for five, six, seven years, then did the internet for eight years. I could have stayed in the internet that whole time, but my bug—I was always the calling—was clean tech. And now, you know, I'll end my career in this sector. There's no way I go to anything else.
2: Well, good for you. And I could tell that's that's going to be quite a while from now because it sounds like you you've got a lot of game left, Ron.
0: Now at 57, we'll see.
2: Uh, (laughs) Let's talk a little more about renewable energy specifically and and kind of your take on where things are headed, as, as you've demonstrated a real knack for seeing where the puck's going. What's your take on kind of how the drivers for clean tech adoption by end users has evolved over the years? I know you talk a lot about that. In the clean tech revolution. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on how you see the drivers behind adoption changing over time.
0: You know, it's interesting that that book had longer shelf life than it deserved. And I say that because it had the themes that were correct, but at some point the companies were shifting, of course, because it was so dramatic. But we looked at the world from the very beginning of clean edge uh, as a three-legged stool. And I had seen Dan Riker, you probably know Dan Riker, and now at Stanford and elsewhere, but he was in the government for a long time. He's been a VC guy, he's been all over the place. And Dan Riker, very early on at one of the first events I ever went to, talked about the three-legged stool. Of tech, policy, and capital. I think he said finance. I changed it to capital. And I let him know I, I borrowed it, of course. I just, it really struck me as a guy who'd been involved in tech for so long to see that tech, policy, capital, three-legged stool. And you know, you take one of the legs away and it's gonna fall over. And I believe that. There is no energy industry that isn't regulatory or policy dependent. So that three-legged stool was very accurate to me. We used that framework in the beginning, and it still stands today. I, I wouldn't change anything with it. The drivers have changed somewhat, but let me go through the really quickly the five major drivers I see today. One is declining costs. That is by far the biggest driver. These technologies are now competitive. For the IEA, a decade ago, couldn't even really mentioned the word clean energy and now is saying solar is the most cost competitive, most economic source of energy in the history of the world. I mean, that's like just crazy. And so the declining costs, because solar and wind are not fossil fuel dependent, because they're high tech, rapid declining, economies of scale, price experience curves, that has been a game changer. And solar is now, and wind, you've all seen the Lazard uh, levelized cost of energy analysis That's the big game changer. That's what's really different even from when we wrote the book, of course, and certainly from when we started Clean Edge, and certainly from even a decade ago. That's what you're seeing over the last two years or so. The other thing is the investment shifts. We haven't seen as much stimulus money going to green yet. I think that'll be after we all recovered. We've all gotten our vaccinations, but we have seen last year for the first time, and again, I mentioned Bloomberg NEF earlier, so great to see the data they put out $500 $500 billion globally into clean energy last year. First time it broke that number. So that's incredible. Public support, you probably know this. First I have public support is widely defined. You've got corporates you know, with the RE100 saying, we're going to get to 100% renewables. So you've got that driver, you've got governments that are now committing, whether in the US that was traditionally at the state level, now moving to the federal, or whether it's the goals of the EU. And then you've got public opinion, which is just overwhelmingly polls favorably for clean energy. It's it's an astounding, always in pretty much the seventy percent plus range. And a divided country, you really never see anything quite like that. Those are some of the key drivers on that end. And then finally, low carbon policies. Whether it's net zero, whether it's zero carbon, whether it's low carbon, there's this a whole understanding of the need for the shift. And that wasn't really as present 10 years ago, certainly. We're starting to see real traction there. And then finally, people talk about the electrification of everything. I'll frame it a little bit differently. Smart grid and electrification. Those are going to be key drivers. We know that coming out of Texas, a smart bi-directional grid, both with resiliency behind the meter and resiliency on the utility scale. And we're going to see a lot of breakthroughs in that area coming in the next three to five years.
2: Well, you just described Nirvana, that smart bi-directional grid. And I definitely want to get into talking about what's going to be needed on the grid in order to support this transformation a little bit later. But one more question related to the book and you wrote it in 2007 and you took a fascinating stab at projecting where all of these different uh, renewable energy technologies were gonna be 10 years out. Now that you have an opportunity to reflect on what actually happened, I'm curious, as to kind of what were you surprised about? What were the what were both the upside and kind of downside surprises based on where you thought things were really going to go?
0: You know, it's weird. If you go back and look at the book, I, I try to wonder like what were we channeling at the time? Because <laughs> <laughs> we were, so, I, and I, yes. I'm not. I don't want to brag in any way but we were so accurate on so many fronts. Yes. And I think it was just we were so deep into the space we were talking with the venture capitalists. Some of them, you know, had some real horrors, you know, nightmare stories. And some of the stuff they did, they also had some amazing wins, but we were talking to the venture capitalists, we were talking with government agencies. We went to China for multiple weeks in Writing the book, this is interesting, John. We actually had a totally different book written. We had a different editor who left midstream, which you never want an editor to leave midstream. Really, it was That's, a terrible okay. story for us. It was just yeah, yeah. It was a headache. Like, you can't believe. But our first editor let us go with much more thematic sort of stuff. Like I, I'd have to go back and dig it up. It would be like if we talked about like the bi-directional grid or some other huge shifts that were going to happen, and they were totally thematic, and the new editor came in and said, guys, I love this book. It's so great, but it's not the book that needs to be written right now. It's like 10 years from now you can write that book. The book we need right now is the key areas that you focus on sectorally. You need your solar chapter, your wind chapter, your smart grid chapter, and we're like, oh, no, you're right, so we rewrote the book, So at that level, she helped us out a great deal, our editor, because we did stick. So what did we get wrong? And we wrote about it as well. Biofuels. We just got that one wrong. And we knew, we even wrote a caveat to the whole biofuel section saying, can this continue on? Like, Can you compete with food? Is it really that environmental if you're taking sugarcane and corn and not using waste streams? And we all were hoping for the holy grail of cellulosic ethanol, and it didn't happen in the time frame. So we were off on that one. I think we were pretty accurate with fuel cells. We projected it was interesting, but it wasn't going to grow into huge markets. We were pretty on with solar and wind. We were probably ahead of ourselves for sure on the smart grid chapter.
2: Yeah, fascinating. I mean, the fact that you had the courage to go out on a limb and make those types of forecasts I thought was excellent. So, you know what the follow-up question has to be, right Ron? In 07 you had a sense for where things were headed. Today in 2021, what looks like the big growth areas leading to 2030? What do you think are the are the big winners by type that currently exist and what do you think is going to come about that's new that isn't a thing yet, but in 2030 is gonna be very important.
0: Sure, so first of all, the biggest shift is gonna be we're not working in silos anymore. And when we wrote the first, that book, Clean Tech Revolution, everything was in a silo. There was the wind silo, the solar silo, the energy storage silo, the E, everything's coming together. There's a great mashup occurring. So example would be solar plus storage, solar plus green hydrogen. These breakthroughs, nothing is sitting in a silo. It's all a mashup. So that convergence is the trend. And that's the systems integration that we saw happen in the internet space as well. So that's very exciting. There are lots of other mashups, lots of other convergences occurring. One of the other big ones is wind and offshore platform technology. That's why you look at a company like Orsted. And if you remember, Orsted used to be Dong. That's right. Danish Oil Natural Gas. They've turned themselves into a clean energy behemoth. And that's because they took their offshore platform expertise and have paired it with wind turbines. And you've got an incredible offshore wind company. And then this sort of another one is sort of EV's connected grid autonomy, autonomous drive. So you and I could sit here all day and just start like, what are the mashups? What are the convergences? So that's one big shift for sure that I see when I look out. I think one of the great areas of opportunity moving forward is going to be a resilient grid. And obviously, that's uh, something that your audience is very interested in. You guys all know this space much better than I do. But just to put myself, I guess, out on a limb a bit, I think that, one, bi-directionality is going to be very important. If we're going to have distributed energy storage systems and distributed electric vehicles that can serve the grid. And I know there's huge OEM issues on the EV side of that equation. That's gonna be very important. We put on grid connects for four years. We had a great panel on bidirectionality. I just think that's gonna be very important. I also think we're gonna to have to think a lot more about transmission. Texas can make its own decision to be an island if it wants to, but I've talked with the head of CAISO and MISO and others, and certainly with California ISO. And with people like Angelina Galativa, they'll talk very openly about the need for much better inter-regional cooperation. And I think we're going to see a lot of advances in HVDC and transmission lines that are bringing renewables into urban centers. And so that would be the transmission, sort of the the mega grid side of the equation there's lots of people working on that and then we're going to see a lot of breakthroughs on the distributed side as well so whether that's energy storage systems microgrids but just thinking about resiliency on both the end consumer side of the equation behind the meter and on keeping the grid operating at utility scale There's going to be a lot of innovations there, and that even includes all the offshore wind that is being planned finally now in the United States. Well, how are you going to get all those electrons, and you're going to need some pretty good transmission backbone to move them into the urban centers? So I think resiliency is the frame we should be using. The last stimulus package was not passed with bipartisan support. I don't know what that's going to look like in D.C., but if there's anything we can get support on it should be infrastructure so i'm intrigued and interested to see how that all plays out over the next 6 months
2: you know, i think what you're saying makes a lot of sense it's no longer about the individual technologies per se but it's about the convergence of them it's about the focus on resiliency and then it's really about innovations on the grid to now support all of this so What's your take on who's really responsible to put this grid plan together? I mean, you've got individual utilities, you've got the RTOs. It seems to me what's lacking is a national plan for the entire grid that says, "Okay, here's what has to happen. Here's the role each player needs to play. I mean, is true transformation of the grid possible without that overall leadership?
0: Well, it's going to come from a lot of places. I mean, let's look at Tesla this week, the, like, the secret battery pack going outside of Houston. So you've got corporations, whether it's a Tesla or whether that's Siemens, whether it's you name your company, that's working on breakthroughs. So we're going to see that. And Kauai has a great example. Australia has a great example of, of energy storage backup. We're going to see it outside of Houston. That'll be fascinating to watch. In terms of your who's going to bring this all together, you know, you've got the vendors, great. You've got your regional ISOs. Who is going to bring it all together? You know, I think ACOR has a group that's working on this. I think there are a whole bunch of other players that are thinking about this. It's certainly outside of my domain because now I'm so focused just like who are the technologies and the companies that are going to offer those products and services. But yeah, we need to convene. It reminds me a little bit going back to the internet. And you think about being on the Jupiter. I went to the early W3 consortium meetings. That was amazing. Like how geeky could you get? And it's not a very sexy topic, but the interoperability of the grid was being discussed at these meetings. That's what we need right now at the grid level. And so I think if we can inject some organizing bodies that can provide guidance, and I think if we can have target mandates i mean i think the rps is an example has been a very effective tool in the united states so saying that you're going to get to a certain amount like could we have a national clean energy strategy to get to 100 percent clean energy on the grid by 2035 could biden make that happen if he does then you're going to see a lot of, of people trying to say well how the heck do we make that actually happen and all the things we're talking about would be required
2: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What a really interesting take. I agree with you 100% that no one entity can do it independently. It's going to take a village, if you will. You've got so many of these competing interests with NGOs. It's like everybody wants to own it. I'm curious as to how this consortium, like EE3, can form. You know, we certainly represent the large power users. And as a community, I know this is something they want and we can bring them to the table.
0: You know, the same thing's going to happen with, with green hydrogen. There's so much hype around hydrogen right now, and that's not an easy thing to achieve. Was it brown? Is it blue? Is it green? But we are starting to see some organizations come together around those topics. So we didn't talk about this yet. I mentioned hydrogen earlier. Hydrogen is a, still always a bit out there. I've been working on a cleantech maturation curve recently. And unfortunately, green hydrogen is in the lower left quadrant for me, which means it's still many years from maturation. And it's still too expensive. But if you could actually have a green hydrogen infrastructure that worked, that would be amazing because then you take all this excess solar and wind and use electrolysis to create green hydrogen is a storage system for energy. Saudi Arabia just announced, I think, last week, the largest green hydrogen plan in the world using solar. So we'll see whether it's that or whether it's the grid and how it operates and, and how we transmit. Again, it's outside of my domain. I hope that organization will look at things like the internet and the W3 consortiums and the early days of setting up The standardization, but it does come to standardization. And you want to have, if you really want true resiliency, then you need redundancy. And if part of the system goes down, it shouldn't take everything else with it. That's not easily achieved on the grid, but it wasn't probably the easiest thing to imagine on the internet either. So, how do we pull that off? And it's going to take years and lots of money to have that grid of the future. So it's certainly beyond my domain these days. I mean, I'm hoping there are research shops that will spend a lot of time thinking about this. I'd love to brainstorm more about it, but yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting that the same way you applied a prior model to a new industry when you launched CleanEdge, this issue has been successfully tackled before. You referenced how it was tackled with the internet in the retail industry when the whole barcode scheme came up. That was an industry consortium that got together to figure that out. This is something for further conversation, but so we're going to park absolutely. it. And
0: but but definitely an area of great opportunity.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. So let's get back to investing and the future of clean tech investing. One thing we didn't mention in Drivers is the dramatic growth in ESG investing. Just today, we published Larry Fink's CEO letter. You know, He does that letter every year from BlackRock, and he's now saying basically every company has to have a net zero objective to thrive in the future. And A net zero objective leads to interest in not only energy efficiency, but adoption of clean energy. What impact do you think ESG investing has had on clean edge?
0: Yeah. So first of all, I'd say not all ESG is created equal. That's been a huge issue. That's the standardization we were just talking about. The ESG industry has a huge challenge ahead to standardize meaningful ESG classifications. Interestingly for us, a lot of our indexes get put into ESG buckets because inherently they are the companies that are at the forward edge of providing clean water, clean energy, clean transportation, and a smarter, more resilient grid. So those are all the things we cover. But we don't use an ESG framework because ESG primarily in the early days was about Disqualifying companies or elimination of companies, screening out companies. And so, like, you would screen out oil, you would screen out tobacco, you would screen out nuclear, whatever it was you wanted to screen out. And I take a totally different approach. There's no screening out at all. I'm looking for the leaders who are pure plays or diversified with huge, well, depends on the index. CLS is all pure play, US Clean Energy. The global smart grid and grid infrastructure is both pure plays and diversified. And I have to work hard to define which fit in which bucket. But there's no negative screening going on. It's the companies that are leading the charge on enabling those technologies that we track. And whether that's deployment of the technology, companies like a next era which you would know very well. You know, and have the huge renewable Energy Partners division, which is the one we usually track, whether it's Clear Result as well, whether it's Han and Armstrong. So companies are actually putting money into deployment or it's the companies that are making the products, the First Solars, et cetera, or the Teslas. So that's our frame. It diverges quite a bit from ESG. And, you know, sometimes you'll look at an ESG holding and you're like, why is this company in here? (laughs) <laughs> but I don't think you probably usually look at my indexes and say, why is this company in here? That's right. So that's the big differentiator. And, and and again, we get put in the ESG bucket. I know there's been a lot of articles written about the growth of ESG, and, and they'll mention a lot of our indexes. And I take that's fine. We're happy to be included, but it's, it is a different frame. We're much more looking for the players that are driving the change rather than just doing a checklist of. Oh, they've got, and certainly we don't cover that there's anything wrong with S or G, but this is not the frame that we're using for our analysis.
2: Sure. That makes sense. It really, I I guess it would stand to reason is with more people looking in this area and you there as a data source for what's happening in clean tech and companies in clean tech, I would imagine the demand for your services just, just increase, which is great.
0: Well, it's interesting because clean energy dramatically outperformed ESG in, in 2020. It doesn't mean, look, there's going to be volatility in the clean energy sector. Absolutely. But again, it's a different frame. I've worked on some ESG classification boards. I've tried to understand it better. But at the end of the day, we're just pure E in a very different way. We're just looking at who are the players. We're It's an innovation lens is what it is.
2: Yeah. Okay. So you raised volatility. Let's talk about Let's talk a little bit about volatility. The SPAC activity in the past 90 days, with a lot of it focused on EVs, has been fascinating to watch. And I do wonder at times, is there are so many analogies between the internet and clean tech. Do you see the possibility for a bubble in clean tech stocks the same way there was a bubble in internet stocks?
0: Well, we we just had a major correction, and now it's coming back a bit. Right. You know, I'm indexing to benchmark the sector, and if it gets over-exuberant, then that gets tracked, and if it corrects, right. it, it gets corrected. I think we're very different than the internet because the internet, it was totally disruptive, but it had a very low bar to entry. It was totally new. You know, here we are. Social media as an example. This and all the industries that we track are embedded within huge institutional and embedded infrastructure. So that's one very different, big difference. It's not like, oh, I just create the idea and here we go off and running. You got to deal with existing industry. The other thing is that we now got this place. It's, it's that economics that I talked about. Whether you're in a country that's going to leapfrog or whether you're in a place like the U.S. where the transition is occurring, you know, over the next 10 to 20 years pretty dramatically, it's the cost competitive of the economics. The SPACs are a whole different ball of wax. One thing that we've done in our indexes, which is definitely different than some of our competing indexes, is you have to have revenue. I know that's a low bar. I'm not talking about uh, PE. You have to have (laughs) revenue to get into our indexes because if I'm analyzing a pure play, I can't know what that pure play is if it doesn't have revenue. Because right. any company can say whatever they want about what they're planning on doing in the future. We're tracking right now more than three dozen SPACs in the clean energy sector that have all been announced oh, in the are. last six months. Three dozen SPACs plus. Now, some of them are very interesting. You look at a company like Proterra or a company like EVBox out of Europe, which is a EV the largest EV charging out of Europe network. And you look at Charge point. So these are companies with actual revenue. They've chosen the SPAC route. When they have a successful SPAC IPO, we go through a three month curing period before they can be in the index. We will analyze them. If they have revenue and they meet our qualitative and quantitative screens, then they would be eligible for inclusion in the index. If they are a blueprint for future success, and I won't name all the companies, which is the majority of the SPACs right now. They're not going to get in until they have revenue. That's just one screen that we've applied to try to get above the noise.
2: Yeah, well, that's a very sane approach. Some of those other companies have interesting potential upside but yeah, I, but when you get something that's trading at uh, you know 20 times 2025 revenue and they have no revenue yet, it just doesn't it just doesn't make any sense. So it's interesting a couple of episodes ago I had a great conversation with Jigger Shah celebrating our 5th anniversary and At Generate, and obviously, as everyone knows, he's now moved on from Generate to head up the federal government Clean Energy Loan Program. They had a very disciplined set of metrics that they would run investment opportunities through that were based on the same practical measures. Yeah.
0: I mean, as a passive index, I can't go as deep as a Generate does. Again, it's a passive, non-active, non-actively managed index but we can certainly look at things like that and like do they fit definitionally and since one of the screens is revenue then they have to have revenue
2: okay amen is all i could say to that that's great <laughs> ron hey i always like to end a conversation by you know giving my guests an opportunity to reflect on their career and their their experiences so i'd like to ask you a couple of questions before we end along those lines ron And you've obviously done a lot and you've got a lot to be proud of, but what would you say are the one or two things you're most proud of in your career to date?
0: I think that is always a difficult thing to assess. I think writing the first book was certainly a highlight. It's a very consumptive process to write a book, but it's also very focusing. And so for about a year, I took half time to work on Clean Edge and half time to write the book. And that was a lot of discipline to make that happen. But it was great because it really forced us to really clearly state our thesis. So that would be one highlight for me. And I think the other one is just following my inner drive and voice. And and I really encourage young people in particular to do this. You don't always have to pick exactly what the job is, but you got to pick what you're passionate about. Early on, I was passionate mostly about Japan. The telecom stuff was fine. I was interested in it, but it was that merging for me of telecom and Asia, and that's what made it exciting. And it let me live, I didn't tell you this, but I moved back to Japan for three years and did telecom work. So it was great. And so that was a passion, and it it was great. And it's holding to that truth of that, and then moving to the Bay Area and knowing, like, once I saw the internet, just like, oh, (laughs) this totally fits, and then can. Continuously through that journey, knowing like when was the time to finally do clean energy? I could have probably, side note real quick, coming back from Japan, I stopped in Hopland, California at Real Goods. Do you remember Real Goods? And I tried to get a job with John Schaefer and I wasn't successful. And I continued on to California or to San Francisco. But Just kind of having vision, knowing what's gonna excite you if you're driven that way. And I certainly was. I was wired in a way that like my work had to be a cling, but it also had to remunerate me appropriately. And and so I've just had that balance and it's it's been great. So, you know, I think with Clean Edge, I started off making initially I didn't make any salary. I had to fund it, then I made a teacher's salary. For a couple of years. Then I made a professor's salary. It went up a little bit. <laughs> then I made a consultant's salary. So it was interesting, but just, I guess, my tenacity and being committed to move forward in the areas that were of interest.
2: Yeah. Well, there's a certain sense of confidence and courage that's necessary to do what you did. And for you to encourage our listeners to kind of follow their passion and demonstrate that courage and commitment, I think is great.
0: One thing I'll add to this. It's also knowing that it's much beyond myself. To me, it was critical that clean tech come out into the world and that it gained significant traction for the future of the planet. And this is just a very little side note. I spent 10 of my summers as a youth in Algonquin Park in Northern Ontario. And the inspiration for me wanting to be into clean tech was absolutely Algonquin Park. And if you read our first book, you'll see that I, I call out Algonquin Park and my summers, drinking water straight out of the lake. And then at nine years old, being told, you couldn't do that anymore because of acid rain. And that was a huge impact on me. And then years later, I don't know if anyone remember, but the Cleantech Group, the founder of the Cleantech Group, guess what his inspiration was? He was this in the New York Times. He was quoted. His inspiration for getting into Cleantech Algonquin Park. He was a Torontonian and he would go out to Algonquin Park and that was where he got inspired by nature. So that two guys who were at the forefront of clean tech, because clean tech group and clean edge, you can't really, those were the two, both got their inspiration from the beauty and nature of one specific, not just a different place, the same place so you know I'm not trying to be cosmic or new age in any way but just to say that there's a lot beyond our own self here that drives us to the things we do and I just encourage people to find those things that activate them and then hopefully they'll be on a good path
2: yeah it's fascinating and that's a wonderful story and it, it just in connecting a few dots from some episodes Rob Threlkeld who heads global renewable energy for General Motors, He had an experience as a child around maple syrup and just being fascinated by maple syrup and wanting to make sure that maple syrup was going to be able to be made forever. That kind of motivated him towards an interest in clean tech. Trigger Shah's dad gave him a book about solar energy when he was very, very young. And that kind of triggered his interest. So it, it is interesting to see how there are these experiences that people have, and and that's super. So, let's talk about challenges. What's been the biggest challenge in, in your career?
0: Well, I think the other side of that tenacity is just sticking it out through the tougher times. So, that would be, I don't know, there were a lot of people when I was making a teacher's salary that were making a lot more than that. And so, just sort of being willing to hold on to your vision, but those were certainly Challenges for me. I'm trying to think of other challenges. I guess it doesn't really go to clean edge at all, but there was a time in my life, if we're going to get personal, where I had moved to Seattle briefly, and Seattle didn't meld with me in any way. It was like I do live in Portland now, and that was good. This is Pacific Northwest and California. I like the West Coast. But at that time in my life, Seattle didn't have much to offer. It's sort of like no one even knew. This is like pre Microsoft practically. So I then left Seattle and went to Japan, and that's when everything sort of shifted. Everything was great in Japan for me. So just sort of being willing, like, I was a very hard time because I couldn't find a good job. The weather was a bit depressing. I I don't know what else to say other than that. I would call my mom, and she goes like, oh, it doesn't matter where you are. Come back to Detroit. I'm like, no, it totally matters where you are.
2: (laughs) You know, I have to ask, you've referenced Japan numerous times. What drew you to Japan? Why Japan?
0: being you know you talk about these early experiences it had to be be growing up in detroit the the japanese were killing it and in a good way with great cars and the us auto industry was in major decline and i saw my city you know i was outside in the suburbs but detroit was collapsing and so it made me very interested in the japanese and japan and then once i learned the culture and and tea ceremony and ikebana and, and meditation and Zen, it was a natural fit for me. So yeah, I, I loved studying at Conan University in Kobe, Japan for nine months. It also got me to China for a long time. I got to go visit there multiple times and then moved back to Japan and had a wonderful run at a career
2: there. That's awesome. Who's had the greatest impact on your career and who do you admire most professionally? Wow, that's a difficult one. I think
0: some of my colleagues, I mean, Joel McHour had a huge impact on me, his embracing of clean energy outside of Green Biz at the time. And of course, he went out and did Verge. So he had a huge impact on me. My colleague, Clint Wilder as well, partner in crime on two books. So yeah, I think a lot of the people close in my own sphere are just getting lucky to interact with some great people. Andrew Beebe was early on at Clean Edge. He's gone on to do so many other things, but he's also been quite an inspiration. And and you know, folks like who we see right now in leadership roles in the US government from Granholm to Jigger Shaw, it's a very exciting time. For me, a lot of inspirational lights out there. But of course the ones I worked with closely are the ones I know.
2: Super. So you mentioned you're going to end your career in clean tech. You clearly have a lot of game left. You're going to be in it for a while. When you're done, what impact would you like to feel like you've made on the industry Ron?
0: Well, look, we need to transition much more rapidly than we are. I think when we wrote our first report, Clean Tech Profits and Potential, I encourage folks to go back and look at it because it's now 20, more than 20, almost 20 years old. We made some pretty bold projections, but they were still pretty small on the scale of things. And a lot of people thought we were crazy. I'll say I think they thought we were smoking something. And that can't be the thinking that we have right now. We need to really have a wholesale transition and I know it takes time. We knew that. It's not it's not like the internet. The barriers to entry are huge, but we can't be sitting here 10, 15, 20 years from now and still not being at 100% clean energy on the grid and then really close to getting down the footprint on the transportation side of the equation, on the steel manufacturing and industrial side of the equation, and on all the other big ticket items that need to be figured out. And I don't look at it just from a climate perspective. Look, we want clean air, we want clean water, we can do this. But that would be my hope for any legacy that I would have that I just had a small little part in getting people to think about that and not being dogmatic, but just being it from an economic and an environmental perspective, that those two things were not separate, but they're integrally linked. And then in fact, the way to make money is to forward environmental solutions. So I would hope that somehow I had a small piece of that and there are lots of other players.
2: That is a wonderful note to uh, end on. You've clearly uh, accomplished great things in your career to date, and I look forward with great interest to continue to track the good things that you and your colleagues will be doing at CleanEdge.
0: Thanks. This has been really fun.
2: Yeah. Thanks very much, Ron. And to our listeners, thanks for listening and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Tell your colleagues and peers about the podcast. To learn how you can become a part of our upcoming virtual renewable energy forum, see details at the Smart Energy Decisions website under our events tab. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Ron in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions.
1: Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.